Hello, and welcome to the Capitol Beach, the ASPN podcast that deals with coastal policy in Washington, D.C. This is Derek Brockbank. I'm your host, and I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. And I'm joined today with a, a guest I'm really excited to talk to, someone from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which is an organization I tremendously respect. They are uh, really changing the face of conservation throughout the country and, and along our coastlines um, in ways that I think aren't aren't noticed too much, but are having tremendous impact on the environment and on wildlife. Um, so really excited to be joined today by Tom Kelsch, who is the Senior Vice President for the Gulf Environment Benefits Fund. Thank you for being here today, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, great. We're going to dig into this interview and, and talk a bit about NIFWF. The National Fish and Wildlife Foundation goes by their acronym NFWF or NIFWF. Uh, the Gulf Environment Benefits Fund, what they're doing, how the Gulf is being restored, um, and a little bit about, about Tom and how he got involved in all this. Uh, but first, need to give a shout out to our sponsor, which right now is actually my organization, American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. We have our conference coming up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, October 22nd to 25th. Uh, it's going to be a great conference. We've got speakers from the Corps, from NOAA, uh, from lots of different state agencies around the country, uh, local communities. Um, so you should absolutely come. It's always a good, good event. Uh, early registration deadline is September 28th. And in fact, if you're in a hurry, there's still time to uh, be part of the conference. Our poster deadline abstract is September 6th. So if you've been doing some research along the coast over the summer or, or just missed our oral presentation uh, deadline, get that abstract in and you can be part of the conference. So September 6th for, pre, uh, for poster deadline and then September 28th for early registration. And again, that conference is going to be Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, October 22nd to 25th. And it's where coasts and rivers meet the ASBPA conference. So hope to see you there. And now uh, let's let's turn to our, our uh, esteemed guest. So Tom, again, thank you for joining. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit about NIFWF, but I think you guys are aren't as well known as perhaps you should be for the, the amount of work you do. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your organization? Sure. Um, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was chartered by Congress back in 1984. We are a private nonprofit. Um, since that time, we've grown to become the largest conservation funder in the U.S. with over 17,000 grants awarded to date, total conservation impact of over $5.3 billion. So we have definitely grown into a, a major force for conservation here in the U.S. We specialize in bringing the government, nonprofits, and the private sector together to help address some of the most challenging conservation issues we face. In our country, whether it's imperiled species recovery, uh, improving the health of our oceans and coasts, um, working with private landowners to improve working lands for wildlife, uh, promoting sustainable fisheries, and conserving water for wildlife and people. Terrific. And you mentioned you guys bring together government, nonprofit, and private sector. And I think that sort of tees up the Gulf Environment Benefits Fund because that's really how you were chartered. It was a, or, or the Gulf program started, right? It was a, a court decision mm -hmm. that sent money from BP to you guys to pass out to, to states and nonprofits to do projects. Can you talk a bit, bit more about that? Sure. So um, a little bit of context. Uh, NIFWF had been very active in investing in Gulf conservation for over 20 years prior to the BP oil spill. Um, following this bill in 2010, we worked with uh, agencies, nonprofit partners to 
try to um, make investments that would minimize the impact of the oil spill on wildlife and kind of begin the recovery process. Um, some great successes from that included working with uh, federal and state agencies and FedEx to translocate 25,000 sea turtle eggs from uh, across the Florida Panhandle in Alabama. Um, so this is immediately right after the spill. Correct. You guys are diving in, putting out money to, to save species right at that time. Right. So uh, yeah. um, sadly, had these uh, sea turtle nests hatched, uh, the hatchlings likely would have gone out into the oil water and died. So working with the agencies and FedEx, we were able to develop a program to translocate those eggs <laughs> over to the Atlantic coast where they were hatched um, and released into the clean water of the, of the Atlantic coast. Um, so saved a significant number of sea turtles um, from likely mortality. And then another success from that effort was working with uh, private landowners, uh, Ducks Unlimited, Department of Agriculture, to work with farmers to restore wetland conditions on rice farms and other areas to provide alternative wetland habitat for the millions of migratory birds, waterfowl, shorebirds, songbirds that were going to be coming into the, ghost, uh, into the Gulf Coast and give them that kind of alternative place rather than potentially going into oil oil wetlands. Right, because this happened in April, so this was right before migration started. Right. And you've got, you know, the Gulf is the one of the biggest stopover zones of any migration in the world. Exactly. So working huh. together through those partnerships, we helped to restore and enhance something like 500,000 acres of wetland habitat across the Gulf Coast and through the lower Mississippi Valley. Um, just having tremendous benefits uh, for those birds and, and again, avoiding potential impacts down um, further down the road. So building on that work, um, in 2012, the Department of Justice, BP, and Transocean announced the settlement of uh, certain criminal charges against the two companies. Um, as part of that, uh, those plea agreements, uh, the companies were directed to make payments totaling $2.54 billion to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation that we in turn were uh, uh, directed to use to support projects to uh, remedy harm to some of the natural resources, the species, the habitats that were impacted by the oil spill. This um, direction built on a long history that NIFWF has in serving as a fiduciary on behalf of the Department of Justice and federal and state agencies for managing these types of settlement funds. We've managed uh, several hundred of these types of settlement funds in the past. Obviously, nothing quite as big as this. Yeah. Say that number again. Uh, 2.54 billion. Billion with a B. With a B. At the time, this was the largest um, criminal settlement of any kind uh, in the U.S. Um, so unprecedented funding for, for conservation and unprecedented relative to this kind of an environmental settlement. Um, and then this, uh, I think the DOJ asked NIFWF to serve this also because of our uh, long history of working in the Gulf and some of the immediate successes we'd had and the relationships we'd build following the spill itself. Um, shortly after the announcement of the settlement, uh, the courts adopted the settlement agreement in early 2013. And shortly after that, um, our board approved launching what we call the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund, the sort of program we established to administer these dollars. The plea agreements lay out very specific allocation for the funding. Mm -hmm. Specifically, 50% of the funding is for dedicated for projects in Louisiana, and even more specifically, 
for projects um, to restore barrier islands and advance river diversions that are uh, core elements of the state's coastal master plan. In the remaining funds are um, allocated for projects in each of the other four states, mm -hmm. again, with the primary purpose of restoring uh, species and habitats that were impacted by the oil spill itself. Um, we were pleased working with our state and federal agency partners to have right off the bat been able to award over $100 million that fall for the first projects. And to date, six years into the program, we have now obligated over half of the funds, $1.3 towards um, really great projects uh, across the Gulf Coast. I'm sure we'll talk more about that in a minute. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to dig into that and, and how uh, the NIFWIT funds work in context with some of the other programs. But yes, I, I think we can say it one more time, $2.54 billion is a tremendous amount of money really going toward restoring the ecological um, damages done by the spill. So my quick story is I was working on coastal Louisiana um, at the time for a coalition of environmental groups and, and was sitting around and I remember we heard the announcement and we like knew the announcement was coming the night before, but that was it. Uh, and sitting at EDF offices and watching Eric Holder specifically say, you know, 50% of this money is gonna go towards barrier islands and sediment diversions or, or river diversions which are, you know, there's some level of controversy around them because of their impacts to fisheries. But it was something that we absolutely knew was critical to, to restoring coastal Louisiana and just being astonished that the Attorney General of the United States was actually saying, you know, here's a billion dollars to do the thing that we were advocating needed to be done. It was really one of the, the sort success. of highlights of, of, my, of my career, actually, <laughs> just seeing that happen. So before we dive into a bit more about the, the specific projects, the specific work you're doing, I'd love to hear sort of your background, because you've been at, at NIFWIP for, for much longer. Years. Yeah, much longer than the, the GEBF has been around, the Gulf Environment Benefits Fund. So what's, what's your background here, and how did you transition into this program? So as I mentioned, I've been at the National Fish Wildlife Foundation for over 20 years. Prior to that, I worked in consulting. Um, before getting a master's degree in environmental studies. And then uh, for eight years, I worked uh, at EPA uh, on Clean Water Act 404 policy issues, specifically on wetland mitigation issues. Um, very much kind of appreciate the role that regulatory programs play as a deterrent uh, for impacts to our natural resources. I myself am more of an incentive-based guy, and I was always intrigued by this organization and the role it plays to provide kind of incentives for private landowners, communities to um, undertake the sorts of activities that are needed to help protect and restore our, our important natural resources. What drew me to NIFWIF, NIFWIF is pretty unique in that it's very nimble and entrepreneurial. We try to sort of take risks and do things that um, others may not be as uh, willing to do, given some of the risks involved. We, we very much adhere to the whole concept of partnerships, trying to bring the public and private sectors together to solve problems and very, very results oriented. I think, um, as you sort of noted, there's, there's a, a role uh, for advocacy and litigation and lobbying and, and policy, uh, but there's also a role needed for getting stuff done on the ground. And that's really what this organization is all about, being behind the scenes, critical funder and, and catalyst for that on the ground uh, results. Terrific. 
And so your role now is overseeing the, the golf program. And I know you have uh, some great staff. I know one of them pretty well. Uh, <laughs> My best employee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for those on our, our uh, listeners, the I guess disclosure is that uh, Tom is my wife's boss, so I have to be I have to be nice to him on this interview, otherwise they come back and hurt me. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a good team. You also have a board committee that helps oversee and review the projects. Well, I'll give the board a lot of credit. Um, one of the things when we were given this responsibility that they recognized right off the bat was NIFWF would only be successful in administering this this huge funding if we took advantage of all the strengths that the organization has, um, our science team, our uh, grants systems, our incredibly sophisticated financial systems. And so um, we didn't want to just create a sort of separate unit within the organization, but rather we wanted to draw upon all the strengths um, of the whole team here at NIFWIF. Since I had been here as long as I had uh, and played numerous roles within the organization, um, the board asked if I would be interested in taking on the responsibility to oversee the program um, from a day-to-day -day perspective. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, we obviously work very closely with uh, all the different departments here at NIFWIF to, to maximize the opportunity. And then, like everything else we do at NIFWIF, it isn't just us. We work very, very closely with state and federal resource agencies. Mm -hmm. Per the plea agreements, we're actually required to consult with the state resource agencies, Fish and Wildlife Service, and NOAA in identifying the, the projects that we ultimately want to fund. We've gone, the board kind of went one step further and gave the opportunity for the state resource agencies, who are kind of those closest to the ground, to be able to nominate projects to us on an annual basis. They, at our request, have um, all established portals that allow the public, nonprofits, local communities to be able to nominate potential projects um, for consideration. And then we work through a kind of consensus-based approach to identify the strongest projects annually that we take to the board for approval. Um, so it really is, it's a model that I think is relies on a poor way that NIFWF operates, but has proven to be you know, very successful and very efficient in terms of us being able to get the dollars out on the ground quickly, but uh, effectively. So if you're a local, if you have a local project and you were with a, a you know, local land trust or whoever, and you think, you know, this, this project is something that really should be funded, the process is to go through your state resource agency, so like Florida DEP or, or Alabama DCNR, yep. So you go they through all have websites that mm -hmm. allow the public to submit their, their project ideas, and those are reviewed annually. Mm -hmm. NIFWIF is also through the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund made some strategic investments in planning, mm -hmm. in particular in the states of Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Those plans have given the public also an opportunity to be part of that process, mm -hmm. identifying some of the sort of long-term goals and objectives they'd like to see for their respective coasts. Those plans then kind of guide and shape the priorities for individual projects moving forward. And I assume that that's, you chose those days because Louisiana does have a pretty comprehensive master plan in Texas. That's a pretty good coastal plan planning exactly. process too. Exactly. Sort of. Well, let's, um, so sort of pushing that a bit further, uh, the states are proposing these projects, but they're also, there's a bunch of other money uh, stemming from the BP uh, oil spill, most notably the Restore Act, which was Clean Water Act 
penalties. Um, NERDA, the Natural Resources Damage Assessment, which was sort of the to deal with the immediate uh, impacts. Um, and, and these each have billions of dollars in funds. How do you guys at, at NIFWIF work with the NERDA trustees and the Restore Council to make sure that you guys aren't sort of overlapping, you're not underlapping, or you're not missing projects that really need to be done, but you think they should do it and they think you should do it so it doesn't happen? How do you guys work together on that? So uh, three key uh, points relative to that. First is coordination. I mentioned that um, we've given the states the opportunity to uh, sort of a leadership role in terms of nominating projects to us. Um, and then the, the consultation requirement we have, the Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA. Those agencies are also, and, and even the individuals at the agency leadership, all the way down to the program staff are the same individuals that we work with. They're the same individuals that are representing their agencies on these respective councils, whether it's the NERDA trustees or the Restore Council. The oversight from our board has also helped relative to that because they've really wanted to make sure that we're not just working with the agencies, but reaching out to our nonprofit partners like the Nature Conservancy, Ducks Unlimited, Audubon. That's part of who NIFWIF is. We're kind of have an open door policy and want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity for their voices to be heard. I mentioned planning and prioritization. I think that has been critical as well. Early on, we relied on the Gulf Restoration Task Force strategy for the Gulf that was created following the oil spill. Again, that was a document that was created by the same state and federal agencies who um, are responsible for the Natural Resource Damage Program and Restore. Um, rather than reinventing priorities for the Gulf, we relied heavily on that document and then worked to create what we call a conservation framework that lays out the specific um, habitat types and uh, living resources that were injured by the spill that were kind of the priorities for the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund. So that planning and prioritization has been getting that commitment up front has been very key. And then lastly, it's just communication. Um, we are on the phone or in meetings with uh, our agency partners continually. And as I mentioned, also with uh, our nonprofit partners. And I think having that open line of communication has, has really been essential to ensure that things that are getting done and funded through Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund are fully coordinated with investments through Restore and investments through the Natural Resource Damage Program. As you had noted previously, each of those programs, we all have certain strings attached. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to have those open lines of communication, think about what's the outcome we want to accomplish and which funding source is the right funding source based on some of the um, constraints for the individual project and the constraints for the funding source. And I think that's working worked quite well um, up to this point. Terrific. So it sounds like you have a nice sort of overall planning framework with clear guidance, both from the, the court decision about what you can fund mm -hmm. and ongoing coordination. I guess it sort of leads me to, do you ever, are there ever times where despite that planning process, despite that framework, there are proposals which you guys feel like just don't really fit either with your mission or with what's what you should be funding and, and how do you handle that? Um, on occasion, we will become aware of a, a project that may be a great kind of conservation project for the Gulf, but it may not necessarily fit within the sort of narrow parameters that we have under the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund. Right. And that really comes down to a compliance determination that we need to make. 
in those situations, we will work with the, the project proponents, work with the agencies to better understand the details, to be able to determine what the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund may be able to support and what maybe aspects of the project we can't. When we can't fund a project in its entirety, that may be a perfect example where we go to uh, the Restore Council or to the Natural Resource Damage Trustees or other sources of funding. There's obviously other federal programs, there's private money um, to see if we can't pool and leverage from multiple sources of funding in order to overcome some of those constraints. I think in the area of um, habitat protection, land acquisition, mm -hmm. that's proven to be very critical in terms of that effective coordination. And we have some recent examples in both the states, you know, just off the top of my head, in the states of Florida and Alabama, where the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund has been able to fund you know, maybe half of a project cost and the states have been willing to tap into some of their other resources to cover the remaining need. And taken together, we're able to you know, achieve some unprecedented acquisitions across their respective Gulf Coast. Very interesting. So because you guys are constrained by really addressing the damages or the impacts of the spill, you might be able to partially cover some of it and then they can find additional funds to sort of do the rest of that. Yeah. That's great. Good, good way to leverage funds, leverage um, opportunities. So you, you mentioned a couple of specific things, planning as being a big success, but been the, the Gulf Environment Benefit Fund specifically has been operating for, you said, six years now. Mm -hmm. And obviously the Gulf work has been going on for decades. Are there specific highlights you'd like to share, accomplishments, projects that you think have been really, really successful that wouldn't have happened without you guys? Yeah, overall, um, this definitely recognize this is an incredibly unique opportunity to achieve conservation results at scale. And early on in meetings with uh, many of our nonprofit partners and the agencies, everybody was focused on, with as much money as there was, how are we going to restore the entire Gulf ecosystem? Well, unfortunately, um, as much money as there is coming out of these settlements, it's not enough to restore the Gulf ecosystem. It is enough money to leave a legacy across the Gulf Coast at the, what I would call the landscape scale. So there are places... Uh, Grand Bay on the, the border between Mississippi and Alabama, 23,000 acre um, area that is pretty much protected through both state and federal means. But there's an awful lot of inholdings within that overall ecosystem. And there's a need for a lot of um, habitat enhancement to ensure that that area is, that the benefits can be sustained and the, the system overall is resilient to some of the changes we're, we're already seeing across our coast. So that's a great example of where um, we're able to accomplish things through acquisitions, through habitat restoration and long-term management that are hopefully leaving a, a legacy across um, that stretch of the, the North Gulf Coast. In Louisiana, as you mentioned with the master plan, having one point $27 billion to help the state accelerate um, key elements in the master plan has been really, really important. And I give, um, I saw that you interviewed Congressman Graves recently um, when we were working with him as the, uh, in his role heading up CPRA, he was incredibly strategic at recognizing the opportunity of these uh, the Gulf Environmental Benefit Funds to accelerate uh, the restoration of Kaminata headlands mm -hmm. 
um, which we're pleased the association awarded as the best beach restoration project. Yeah, 2019 yeah. Best Restored Beach Award for so, Dominata. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, just an amazing project. Yeah. So in total, between phase one and phase two that we funded, 13 miles of barrier island shoreline that was restored. I can't remember the total amount, something like 12 million cubic yards of, of sand. I actually, um, I actually had the chance to interview Renee Orr at Bureau of Ocean Energy Man uh -huh. Management, who oversees that. So most of the sand yep. from Caminata was Ship. taken from Shipshoal, which is an offshore. And we were trying to suss out what is 12 million cubic yards of sand mean? And it actually did some math calculations. And it's if you can think of a sand castle the size of the Empire State Building, yeah. it's that amount of sand times 12 was 12 Empire State Buildings worth of sand that got moved to restore this barrier. I mean, just amazing. We've taken our board out there a couple times and, and to stand and see the vastness is just amazing. So here you've got a project that is important just in terms of the beach and dune habitat it's restored, but it's obviously protecting vast expanses of marsh behind it and protecting Port Fouchon, um, you know, the uh, farthest point within uh, Port um, along the Louisiana coast that serves 90% of all the deep water uh, oil and gas development. Uh, and it, you know, it's so essential to our economy and, and so many aspects of Louisiana and, and uh, the communities across the coast. So that's another great success. And then you mentioned the sediment diversion projects. Um, uh, having the funding and, and NIFWIF's ability to be able to obligate it in a timely manner, mm -hmm. I think, has been really instrumental to CPRA to be able to initiate some of the planning and then the initial engineering design as they work through the EIS process right. with the federal agencies. Right. Hugely complex um, and, and, as you mentioned, controversial project, but essential to uh, efforts to restore the Louisiana coast to harness the land building uh, functions that the Mississippi River historically played. So being able to fund uh, the engineering and design of those, those projects and obligate the funds and disperse the funds in a timely manner, I think has been really essential to the state's efforts to be able to um, advance those projects. Then there's some other great projects we've done in the Texas, uh, along the Texas coast, two historic ranches, Powderhorn Ranch and Sabine Ranch, respectively 17,000 acres and 12,000 acres, um, have for decades been priorities for both the state, uh, the uh, federal agencies and the NGOs of wanting to protect these important ranches that have really unique habitat values. Having the resources that we have under Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund has been kind of that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and we're so pleased that the agencies have been able to see that opportunity and, and seize upon it. And then on the kind of living resource side, we're starting to fund oyster restoration at a scale that we've never been able to do with, again, even a, a vision among the state agencies and, and NOAA for exceeding that through where we are today and, and uh, really trying to take it up in order of magnitude and addressing that chronic condition that we've seen across the Gulf Coast oysters. Um, and then lastly, I'll just say fisheries management. Um, 
management of the red snapper fishery in particular <laughs> is hugely controversial mm -hmm. in the Gulf, hugely important from an economic and just quality of life perspective in the Gulf. Everyone recognized prior to uh, the launch of the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund, the need to improve the accuracy of stock assessments mm -hmm. um, to help better inform management of those fisheries in a more sustainable way. We have been funding for five years now efforts in Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi to be able to improve that um, understanding of the status of each of the stocks and already starting to see some some good benefits from that work. So that's when I talk about having impact at scale, those are just a few examples of things that we're really proud of where recognizing the unprecedented nature of this funding has allowed us working very, very closely with the agencies and nonprofits to be able to accomplish things that never, frankly, would have been able to be accomplished previously. And just hearing some of those examples, what strikes me is that each of them are wonderful fish and wildlife habitat projects or fish and wildlife protection projects or assessment projects, but all of them seem to have tremendous ancillary value in protection from storm surge, hurricanes, economic development, even in some cases recreation value. So really good projects that are essentially focused on fish and wildlife, but are providing so much more than that. So really impressive list. Yeah, and we, under the plea agreements, we are constrained because we have to um, make decisions about what to fund based solely on the um, ability of the project to remedy harm that was caused to the species or the habitats, but it is certainly completely understood that we're picking projects that have these ancillary benefits that are so important to the Gulf Coast, um, whether it's storm protection, whether it's uh, the economies, whether it's just the quality of life. Um, and I think that's very much being appreciated now by the communities who are so badly affected by this this disaster. So you mentioned earlier that you're six years in and you've obligated just over half, about $1.3 billion. Do you have a sense of how many different projects that's touched or? Uh, we have funded 145 projects okay. with those dollars. Um, cool. Some as small as a couple hundred thousand dollars to help support some smaller um, groups who do, say, marine mammal stranding response, mm -hmm. um, they have increased capacity to, to respond to those issues. And then the largest uh, to date has been the Commandant Headlands Restoration, although we last fall awarded CPRA an additional $160 million to do restoration of three of the barrier islands in the Terrebonne Bay system. So that work will be coming online within a few months. Cool. So, um, which sort of then pivots to, okay, you spent just over half, but that means you still have well over a billion dollars to obligate. What's what's coming up next? What do you see as the challenges? Uh, you know, how are you pivoting? What have you learned in the past five or six years that will make the next five or six years and the next billion dollars even more effective? As we start to think about the next few years, the biggest challenge we see is how do we sustain the investments? How do we ensure that these outcomes that we've been targeting at the landscape scale, scale, how do we ensure that we achieve those goals and sustain them in the long term? Right. And I think Texas is probably going to be the first state where we will obligate the remaining funds first. They, Texas um, received a smaller allocation of funding mm -hmm. and obviously a bigger coast. Um, so probably the next couple of years, we will have obligated the remaining funds um, available for Texas. 
So we're having those conversations with the agencies now. We've made tremendous investments in the upper coast, for example, from Galveston Bay to the Louisiana border. What's missing from, from the portfolio that we've invested in to date, and then what's needed to, to maintain some of these important investments we've made so that those conservation benefits are, are sustained, hopefully, in perpetuity. Whether it's funding through GDBF or whether it's funding through NRD or, or Restore, we're just trying to make sure that the agencies are thinking about that long-term um, objective and, and outcome that we all want. It's very easy in our day-to-day -day basis, uh, our day-to-day -day work, to focus in on kind of what's at hand and every once in a while lose sight of that, that bigger picture. And so that's something um, we here at NIFWIF are taking on as our responsibility is to make sure that people think about that, that longer term goal. And to that point, with all these three major funding sources, they were all essentially meant to be spent and obligated and, and get conservation on the ground, which mm -hmm. is great. But some of these projects are going to need ongoing operation and maintenance. Is there a, a trust fund or is there some sort of way or is it just that the communities are now responsible for maintaining these? How do you, what's the operation and uh, maintenance plan for some of these projects? That is definitely an issue that we are focused on kind of at the moment. It's one of the unique opportunities with Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund. These are non-federal funds. The other two sources are federal. And so there are... Um, fewer restrictions from that perspective. So we're having at least some discussions with uh, agencies about creative financial uh, uh, tools that we might use to help support some of those needs. In land conservation, it's very typical for an entity to establish a long-term stewardship fund to make sure the property can be managed in perpetuity. Um, less common when it comes to uh, maintenance of a beach or dune system or uh, some of the, the work we're doing to address predator control on sea turtles and, and shorebirds. Uh, so those are some new challenges and don't have the answers yet, but we're hoping to uh, think about that and try to come up with some, some solutions to make sure these, these results are sustained over time. I guess somewhat relatedly, although really looking at your whole portfolio, the Gulf is is particularly susceptible to climate change impacts, sea level rise, increased storm intensity. So I guess two parts to this question. One, as you've been thinking of, as you've been funding projects, as you've been thinking about projects, has there been a requirement to demonstrate that these will withstand climate change impacts? And then building on that operation and maintenance aspect, are you requiring communities or projects to think about how, how the projects will evolve? as seas rise and as, as some of the storms get more intense? Sustainability is the sort of number one uh, issue that my board always asks about with mm -hmm. any of these investments. And uh, part of our response is letting them know that obviously when we're looking to fund a project, we want to make sure that the engineers involved, the agencies involved are thinking about what's the appropriate um, design life for the project. So Kaminat is a great example. The appropriate design life that CPRA has adopted for its barrier island work is 20 years. It doesn't mean it's going to be gone in 20 years. It just means that that's sort of the standard that the engineers were um, tasked with using. That very much takes into account um, sea level rise projections, subsidence, uh, etc. 
it recognizes the uh, intent to design. I think it's up to a Category 3 hurricane. Um, obviously, it's hard to design for Category 4 or 5 in those extreme situations. So it's good that we're using some of the best science. CPRA, I think, as you know, has an extensive monitoring mm -hmm. program across its coast to help inform and allow it to continually adapt its master plan to those changing conditions. And that's, in many respects, that's the best we can do, right, is to continually use the best information and then adapt accordingly. I think the other strategy that we have is going back to this whole concept of looking at key landscapes across the Gulf Coast. Places like Grand Bay, Big Bend region in Florida, uh, the upper coast of Texas, some of these vast areas where by protecting um, and, and restoring the integrity of these landscapes, it allows them to withstand much, much more effectively some of these challenges that uh, we will see. And you know, we can't predict, obviously, with any great degree of accuracy at this point. But at least you're building in that resilience that is, um, is so critical for these systems. And I think that also speaks to the fact you mentioned at the get-go that, you know, NIFWF does great on-the-ground restoration. There's also roles for advocacy, and I think it speaks to the work that many of the organizations that are listening probably do, which is the ongoing resilience funding, right? You, we shouldn't have to rely on a major disaster right. to do major conservation. Right. And that's going to take proactive. I talked with Congressman Graves, and he's always saying, you know, how much more efficient it is to do to prepare for a storm than it is to respond to a storm. And that needs to, you know, we fundamentally in this country need to change how we're funding restoration and conservation. So NIFWIF comes um, as another example of uh, our ability to sort of be nimble and, and timely and respond to issues as they come up. Actually, following Hurricane Sandy, with some of the disaster relief funding that uh, Congress provided with that uh, storm system, um, the Department of Interior gave NIFWF $100 million specifically to support um, sort of natural infrastructure investments mm -hmm. across the, the Atlantic coast. Um, we were able to work closely with the agencies to obligate those dollars within a short period of time, six months. Importantly, because these were projects that were designed to help protect communities from future storms, we had each of the recipients track similar metrics for how their projects were performing. We're just in the process of completing uh, an evaluation of the sort of first round of those investments and the, and the results. That has very much informed uh, information about the cost effectiveness of some of these types of investments, what's what works best, what's most cost effective. Subsequently, we've been working with the Corps and with NOAA on developing new planning and design tools to help improve communities' abilities to prioritize these types of projects. And then most recently, last year, Congress actually awarded funding um, to NIFWF to launch with a new program we call the National Coastal Resilience Fund. It was $30 million that was available uh, the first year of the program, helping to provide funding that will leverage other funding, but also advance at, an, at a key scale some of these important projects, whether it's beach and dune restoration, marsh restoration, oyster reef restoration, that will help protect communities from future storms, but also benefit fish and wildlife. I think we're um, 
seeing some great interest in that. And I do, I give applaud Congress for recognizing that this is just one more strategy that our country needs to take to address some of these growing challenges that we have across our coast. Yeah, and you mentioned it's sort of growing popularity. And I definitely encourage all our listeners, I think most of the folks that listen to this are involved some way in coastal restoration. And that's a, a great program. It was 30 million, I think it got increased to 50 million, at least in the House bill so uh, it, this year. Um, it was 30 million first year. Uh, Congress renewed that funding this past year. And then as part of the most recent uh, disaster relief bill for hurricanes, Michael and Florence and a couple of the other disasters, there was an additional 50 million for communities that were affected by those two storms. Um, so yeah, it, increasing funding and um, right now Congress is still considering uh, renewal of that in the 2020 appropriations bill. Right. So uh, we could probably spend a whole podcast and actually I'd kind of like to, I might follow up with you and see if we can figure out who at NIFWF I can talk to about some of those programs because I think there's tremendous work going. I mean, there is tremendous work you guys have done in the East Coast following Sandy as well as using that program to leverage other funds for community resilience. We are about out of time. So as our regular listeners know, I always have a the same final question for all our guests, um, which is what is your favorite beach or coastal area? And I'm gonna actually uh, sort of put you on the spot and say you're allowed to name I'm going to ask you to name two. One in uh, one in the Gulf region, so you can be political about that one, because you know I know you have a lot of a lot of people you need to satisfy with your Gulf. But then one that's not at all related to the Gulf, maybe elsewhere in the U.S., around the world. You know, one that you just you know you just love. So favorite beach or coastal area in the Gulf, and then not in the Gulf. <laughs> so I'm going to do the politically correct thing and just for the Gulf mention how I'm continually amazed and, and how much I appreciate the extensive natural beaches that exist across the Gulf, whether it's Brayton State Park in Florida or the other state parks in Alabama and Texas, the National Seashores, uh, Gulf Islands and Padre Island National Seashore, or um, refuges like Bon Secours, um, McFadden Refuge in Texas. It's amazing when you travel around the Gulf Coast to see such significant expanses of undisturbed wild um, beach with just amazing wildlife. So I, that just always blows me away at the, the beauty and the uh, magnitude of what mm -hmm. exists down the Gulf. So I'm not going to pick a, a single one. <laughs> okay, we have to pick a single one for your non-Gulf. <laughs> so if my mother-in-law is listening, uh, she grew up in Carmel, California, uh, and Carmel Beach is pretty nice. <laughs> pretty spectacular <laughs> the there. Sunset, yeah, so. you got humpback whales yes, exactly. and, and otters. And, yep, yep. yep. So okay. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Terrific. Well, uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Enjoyed uh, learning a bit more about National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and your program, and, and keep up the good work. Great. Thanks for having me.